That Sunday school, you guys are dismissed, up, dismissed upstairs for a snack. We're going to be in chapter 17 of 1 Samuel today. I printed off the whole chapter. It's a long chapter. It wouldn't fit in the bulletin, so I had to shrink it down, put it on double-sided. You can open up your Bible. If you'd rather uh, not enter into it kind of like textually and analytically, but more imaginatively than just sort of place yourself on the story in your mind's eye, this is probably one of the most famous stories in the Bible, story of David and Goliath. But if you've only heard the Sunday school version, then you've really just sort of scratched the surface in terms of the depth of meaning. Uh, taking time to walk through a text like this is really important because it reminds us that even with stories that we feel like we're very familiar with and we get and we know the point, there are layers of meaning that intersect different dimensions of our lives that God can't uh, kind of place in our lap all at once. So he has to do it bit by bit as we come back to these texts and move through them again and again. So even this morning, whether this is the first or 100th time through this text, it really can be deeply meaningful to us. So let's dive in. Verse 1, Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Sukkot in Judah. They pitched camp near Ephes Damon between Soko and Azekah. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another, with the valley in between them. So I want you to notice where Azekah is. This is a low-resolution picture, sorry. But the highlighted square is where Azekah is, and it's between basically Bethlehem and the Philistine-controlled territory on the west. Israel is, you can think of Israel as geographically divided by three major strips, the coastal plain, the Shephelah, and then the mountainous plain. And in the Shephelah, it's, it's, it's kind of a long north to south valley. And that's where a lot of uh, the larger battles in Scripture are, uh, take place, including this one. And the coastal plain was traditionally dominated by the Philistines. The mountainous plains, as the Israelites came in from the east, that's where they settled in the Promised Land. And so Jewish teachers would regularly use the geography of Israel to ask the question, Who's winning the Shephelah in your life? Right? You've got the forces of godless, worldliness, evil, and the forces of good and God. And there's lots of places in our own heart, in the world, that those collide. And when those collide, and when those are doing battle, who's winning? And the vision here was to use this as a devotional reflection to say, God, are, 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 is your spirit winning the Shephelah in my life? Am I taking ground against the forces of evil in my own life, in, in the community, in the world that I'm a part of? Um, let's look at the next slide. This is a view from Azekah in the Valley of Elah. So just a reinforcement. These are real places. These are real events that really happened. You can go there today. And you've got sort of Saul's camp on the one side and the Philistine camp on the other in this long plain, right? We think of something like this at a Lord of the Rings the battle for the Pelennor Fields, this long, massive plain that allowed large armies to square off. And so as we enter into this imaginatively, sort of understand that that's, you're kind of looking out over a valley and to the other side, and there's the army. What this means is that the Israelites, although it's called the Valley of Elah, really, what are you staring into? You're staring into the Valley of Death, or valley that is, exists under the shadow of death, because the Philistines have said, we're going to war. So when they're looking at this valley, this is a place of darkness and of confrontation. Verse 4, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was about six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head, 
wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing five, some translations will say 6,000 shekels. On his legs, he wore bronze greaves. A bronze javelin was slung on his back. His spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. That's about 15 pounds, just the head of the spear alone. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Now in Sunday school, all the attention goes to Goliath's size. He's big. He's about nine feet tall, depending on uh, the translation. And it's like, oh, the obvious picture of enormity. But one of the things that Hebrew writers often don't do is install, is install a lot of detail in their descriptions of things. It's usually very sparse. Goliath gets a lot of, Goliath gets a lot of description. And I want to read the description of him again, and I want you to pick up any um, pattern that you hear. Because when Hebrews describe something, it often has a dual meaning. It's literal, but it also is pointing to a figurative or metaphorical meaning. So his height was six cubits. He wore a coat of scale armor, and it weighed 6,000 shekels. And the point of his iron weighed 600 shekels, of his, the, the iron tip of his spear. Did anyone notice anything? anything any symbolism stand out? What's that? 666. Right. Sixes are used repeatedly here. And what kind of armor is he wearing? But how, uh, what's the fashion of it? It's scaled. What else has scales? A snake, serpent. We're being told very clearly and as um, viscerally as we can to a Hebrew mind, which thinks imaginatively and in pictures, Goliath is the embodiment of evil. He's a living embodiment of evil. Philistines are a bad crew. He's the baddest of the bad. And he's formidable. Verse 8, he stands up and Goliath shouts across the valley to the ranks of Israelites. He says, why do you come up and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man, have him come down to me. If he's able to fight me and kill me, he will become your, uh, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will be subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul, who's the king, and all the Israelites are dismayed and terrified. Now, to be honest, we shouldn't be too surprised that everyone's shrinking back in terror. Even Jonathan, remember Saul's son, who led the guerrilla uh, attack on the Philistine outpost a few chapters earlier, even he is shrinking back. And the reason is, is because the Philistines have all the advantages in the situation. They have a massive technological advantage. They have the iron advantage. Goliath isn't just big and mighty, but he's equipped with the latest weapons. He's like a tank. He carries a sword and a javelin and an iron-tipped spear. He has a suit of armor. He's got a shield-bearer. His people were iron-working masters, which the Israelites didn't have, and that allowed the Philistines to prosper economically and materially and certainly in warfare in the region at the time. And so Goliath and the Philistines present as unbeatable, undefeatable. They're literally the biggest and the best, and they have the best of everything. On paper, this is going to be a bloodbath. 
And Saul and the Israelites know it. Verse 12, now David was the son of an Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And Jesse had eight sons, and in Saul's time he was very old. Jesse's three oldest sons had followed Saul to war. So uh, David's three older brothers are uh, transcript, conscripted into the war. The firstborn was Eliab, and then Abinadab, and then Shammah. David was the youngest. The three oldest followed Saul, but David went back and forth from Saul to tend his father's sheep in Bethlehem. Remember, David is serving Saul, playing the harp for him, relieving him from the distress of the evil spirit that God allows to come upon Saul in judgment for his uh, rejection of God. So in these few verses, we're introduced to Goliath, mighty, powerful. He's, he's holding all the cards. And then you've got David, who is weak and vulnerable, and certainly from a worldly point of view, completely insignificant. And he's just going, but he's not even in the army. He's just like a little errand boy who's delivering messages and food to uh, the army between his father's house. Verse 16, for 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took a stand. That's something sometimes we don't emphasize enough in the Sunday school version. This goes on for 40 days. 40 days, Goliath comes out and says, Pick your champion. We'll go one-on-one. -on -one. We'll have this thing settled within a half an hour, maybe within 15 or 5 minutes. No one in Israel steps forward. Day 1, day 7, day 23, day 36. That's demoralizing. The shame heaps up when you realize, maybe I should go out there. I'm not going to go out there. Is anyone else going to go out there? Really? Day 23, 30? The shame is piling up. The disgrace is piling up on Israel. And Goliath is just heaping the insults. And saddest of all is Saul, who's not stepping up. The Philistines have their champion. He's a head shoulder than the Philistines. But remember, Saul was also a head taller than the Israelites. And Saul is shrinking back. Verse 22. Oh, sorry, over the next few verses, um, just to fast track it, uh, Jesse sends David to the front lines with some food and supplies and says, check in on your brothers. Let's jump down to verse 22. David left his things with the keeper of supplies at the camp, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they're doing. And as he was talking to them, it was the time when Goliath comes out and taunts the Israelites. And he stepped out from his lines and he shouted his usual defiance. But David heard it. And when the Israelites saw the man, meaning Phil the uh, Philistine Goliath, they all fled from him in great fear. So now David's there, he hears the challenge, and he sees everybody kind of like backing up, and uh, you know, it's, a, it's that famous thing where it's like, can I have a volunteer? And everybody else steps back, and you're kind of left. <laughs> super awkward. Now the Israelites had been saying, do you see how this man keeps coming out and defying Israel? And the king gave a reward. It says, if anyone kills this champion, he will also give him his daughter, wealth, and your whole family will be exempt from taxes in, in Israel. So this is a massive economic incentive. And it's still not enough for anybody, even Jonathan, to say, mm, I've done the risk calculus. I, I know my chances are small, but I'm going to go into this. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? 
Now notice, for 40 days, the Israelite troops have been under the suffocating shame and weight of, of the shadow cast by this personification of evil. And what they see is, is terrifying. What they see is despair-inducing. It saps them of all courage. And they're just uh, carrying layers and layers and weeks and weeks of scorn heaped up upon them. But David doesn't see that. He says, who's going to shut this uncircumcised Philistine up? Doesn't even give him a title. Doesn't call him the champion. It's, um, it's an idiom of, of derision. Un- to call a Gentile uncircumcised at that time is to say, you're, you're outside of God's protection and power. You're not a part of God's family. What? Seriously? No, no one's taking this guy on? David sees things very differently. And one of the things that's very interesting, what that means is, over his young life, maybe 10, 12 years, he was spending a lot of time shepherding sheep. He was spending a lot of time alone, a lot of time in boredom, a lot of time singing, a lot of time praying, a lot of days, a lot of weeks, a lot of years where nothing really much happens. You're just doing faithfully what you've, what's been placed in front of you to do. And yet in that time, David has learned somehow to see reality like capital R reality. He's learned to see things as they really are. He's been able to push past some of the illusions and um, lies about who God is, who he is, what it means to serve God in the world. Through his prayer and meditation and reflection, David has learned to see things from God's perspective. And so when he looks into this valley of the shadow of death, this valley of Elah, he sees, in a sense, a valley with a red carpet to victory. And he's, I think he's honestly surprised that no one has taken Saul up in his offer. He asks these men, what, what has the king promised? And in verse 27, they tell him, this is going to be done for the man who kills him. But then David's older brother, Eliab, hears him speaking to the men. And Eliab burns with anger towards David. Why have you come down here? And I picture this big older brother like, punching him on the shoulder, you know, punching him in the chest, you know, poking at him, get him right up in his face. Why have you come down here? And with who, who'd you leave the sheep with in the wilderness? I know how conceited you are. I know the game you're playing, David. I know how conceited you are. You just thought you'd saunter in here. I know how wicked your heart is. You just came down here to watch the battle. You were bored in the wilderness, and you're like, I've got nothing better to do. I'm going to go watch my brothers get slaughtered. This isn't a game, David. This isn't a joke. Eliab is furious. And remember, Eliab is one of the people that Samuel thought, oh, this will be the next king. And God said, no, don't anoint him. I've rejected him. He believes, he knows his little brother. He believes he sees into David's heart and motivation. And he doesn't trust that David's here for any other reason outside of being self-serving and escaping boredom. And when I read that, I thought, just one thought that came to mind is I'm like, you know, man, some of, the, some of the most wounding comments you can receive in your life are from f- close family members or friends who have lived with you their entire life but don't actually know you and then assume the worst of you. 
There are, there are honestly, there are few wounds that, that go deeper than that. So I feel bad for David here. Verse 31, what David said was overheard and reported to Saul. Saul sent for him. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, I can just see him taking a deep breath and I think part of Saul's heart is probably like, wow, like I remember when I was young and naive and I thought I knew um, what faith looked like and the way the world really worked and he says, David, you're, you're not able to go out against this Philistine. You're not able to go out and fight him. You're only a young man and that means youth or a little boy. He's been a warrior from his youth. David, it's, it's not even a fair fight. I, I, I would be sending a sheep to the slaughter. David says to Saul, think of the boldness here. He's been his armor, armor bearer. We don't know how long the period has transpired here when he's been in Saul's service. But this is the first time David pushes back on the king. And he says, well, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep, and when a lion or bear came and carried off the sheep with the flock. I went after it. I struck it down. I rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair and I struck it and killed it. So your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. And um, this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them. Because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. And then Saul, I'm not exactly sure what's going through his mind other than a, a nudging of the Spirit of God, but he says, have at it. Okay, I give you my blessing. David, remember, was an insignificant, nobody shepherd boy from the middle of nowhere, very rural Bethlehem, small little village at that time. He could never have foreseen how all the trials that he'd experienced in his life, attacked by a lion or a bear, having to face down those kinds of beasts, were preparing him to one day have this moment of destiny up against evil incarnate. But they actually were. That's the cool thing about the story. You can see how God's preparing David. And again, I want to remind everyone, but especially young people, what I did last week. Be faithful when no one's watching. Keep showing up to your daily responsibilities, even if they're boring and they don't seem like they're building any momentum anywhere. They seem kind of directionless. Your study, your practicing of your drills, your uh, musical or artistic talents, whatever the things God has placed in you, keep developing those skills because we don't often realize that God is you will use those times to position us for a defining moment until that defining moment arrives. I also think it's pretty funny that David <laughs> says, again, you get a window into this guy's chutzpah. He's like, Saul's like, you can't beat this guy. He's a, he's a masterful warrior. David's like, dude, I've fought tons of dumb beasts before. I, this, is the same, this is the same thing. Again, David really, he's not intimidated. He sees through the illusion of this great champion who no one can beat. He's like, he's like a dumb bear. I've killed a dumb bear. Like, you can, you can trust me, Saul. 
Verse 38, Saul dressed David in his own tunic. He put a coat of armor on David and a bronze helmet on his head. And David fastened his sword over his tunic and he tried walking around because he was not used to them. Right? So, um, here's David wearing this awkwardly oversized armor. It's not custom fit like it is for Saul. And it, it's just like, and I'm sure Saul watching this, you know, 10, 11-year-old boy walk, walk around is like, oh, I've, I've made a terrible mistake. I've made a huge mistake. <laughs> um, some people wonder whether this is a calculated move by Saul. Because if Saul gives his armor to David and David wins, Saul gets to say, I get part of the credit. So again, you're seeing another level of immaturity in Saul that he's, he's trying to figure out how do I come out of this not looking like a total coward. Anyway, Saul appears willing to loan his fighting gear, but David says to him, I can't go in these. I'm not used to them. So he takes them off. Now, there's an, there's an entire sermon in that line. I can't go in these. I'm not used to them, and he takes them off. I'm going to give you the punchline. Be very careful not to be tempted to fight the battles in your life wearing other people's armor. Be very careful not to be tempted, because we all will. Say, well, I can, I can have victory in this battle if I um, use this person's strategy, if I imitate this person. might even be godly examples. Um, I, I'm going to kind of put on a different identity, and where that comes from is a fundamental insecurity in who God has made you. And God has made David for this moment. And thank God, David has this moment where he's like, I'm not Saul. I'm not called to be Saul. So I'm not going to try and like awkwardly mimic and, and play act Saul by dress, playing dress up. So he takes it off. David chose to fight as David. And that means you don't try and serve God like I do. You don't try and serve God like Rick does. You don't try and serve God like anyone else around you does. You have to learn to discern from God who you are, who God has made you to be, and the battle that God has fitted you for. And then, and sometimes this is big trust, especially if we haven't gotten a lot of affirmation from people around us, to say, you don't have to wear someone else's armor. You don't have to try and be something that you're not. You be yourself and trust that God can use you in the battles that you face. So verse 40, then he, David, took his staff in his hand, his shepherd's staff, and he chose five smooth stones from the stream. He put them in a pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. So here's the valley. Goliath comes out. David comes out. Maybe they're 30, 40, 50 feet apart. It's like a duel at high noon in a western. Tensions at fever pitch. The stakes could not be higher for Israel. Again, think if you, are, if you do not know the next chapter of this story, the next few verses. Everything is riding on this confrontation. Braden, can you come up here for a second? And the confrontation looks like this, but sort of amplified. This is a 10-year-old boy. This is a boy in youth who's healthy, right? 
no armor, maybe just a sling. I'm only five foot eleven. I'm not even. I'm not even six feet like Kara is. I, Goliath is nine feet. Massive presence, right? This is what we're supposed to picture. Imagine what all the Israelites are thinking as they see this. Okay, you can go sit down. Thanks, Brady. <laughs> I don't want to tempt fate and actually get into a fight with him and have David and Goliath happen, part two. F- verse 41, Meanwhile, the Philistines, the Philistine with a shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. And he looks David over and he sees that he's just a boy. Although he's glowing with health and he's, he's handsome, but he despises David. This is an affront to Goliath's pride. This is a joke. And he says, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And he's referencing David's shepherd staff. The Philistine cursed David by his gods. And he says, come here. I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And I picture here a dramatic pause. And it's quiet. And all the Israelites are like, what in the world? Like, maybe they're looking over their shoulders and saying, we've got to figure out an exit plan. Like, what's, what's the fastest route this way when, again, this is, this is going to go south quick. And David says to the Philistine, you come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves For it is the Lord's battle, and he will give all of you into our hands. Verse 48, the Philistine moved closer to attack him, right? Goliath snaps. David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, Goliath. Reaching into his bag, he takes out a stone. He slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead The stone sank into his forehead. He fell face down to the ground. And so David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. And David, you just, again, probably hear a pin drop. I don't even know if the Israelite armies are cheering. This is like, what did I just see happen? David runs over stood over Goliath. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from its sheath. After he had killed him, he cut off the Philistine's head with his sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. And then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entrance of Gath and the gates of Ekron. This is going way far to the west. They're going over the Shephelah. From, sorry, I guess it would be this way. From, uh, from east to west and now going into Philistine territory. And the Israelites, when the Israelites returned from chasing the Philistines away, they plundered their camp. They got all the, all the tech, all the armor, finally got to outfit their army properly. David took the Philistines' head 
and brought it to Jerusalem, kind of like a gift to God and the king. And then I love this part. He put the Philistines' weapons in his own tent. I think that's great. I deserve this. <laughs> this was, I, I want to remember this moment. This is a little souvenir from this battle. It's going to remind me to trust God in the future. Lessons from the text. Just two that um, I want to remind you or share with you for the first time. Number one, there are always giants in the promised land. There's always giants in the promised land. Moving into God's best for you and for us as a church, it will never be easy. It's not a roll out the red carpet kind of experience where God just eliminates all testing and all trials. Times of testing will come, but that's not a reason for us to shrink back into fear. Humanly speaking, David had very, very little to offer, but he did what a shepherd boy was equipped to do. And he did what he was gifted to do. He threw a rock. And because he threw a rock for God, he triumphed over Goliath. God gave him a victory. And that's so encouraging because what that means is God doesn't need the best of the best. He doesn't need the strongest person, the biggest person, the person with the right lineage, the person with the right status. He doesn't need a person even who's equipped with the best of best resources, the best technology. He doesn't need someone who has all the worldly advantages. He needs someone with a simple, pure faith that is directed at honoring him. And this story, if nothing else, shows us that when we take maybe a small shepherd boy level faith, but direct it towards God and say, God, I want to use this to glorify you. God will absolutely honor that. And it's a powerful thing when we place our faith and trust in God. The second thing that I am learning from this text that I'm meditating on in the life of David is don't scorn times in the wilderness. And by wilderness, the wilderness is a picture often in the Bible for times of removal from normal life, times of removal from all of the duties and responsibilities and where life is kind of flowing and it's a place of isolation, often loneliness, boredom, but it's a place of transformation where God does a work in us. And those times in our life are, are not fun. They're, they're just not. And sometimes they're not always tremendously hard, but they're just sort of boring. It just feels like there's no traction and we feel like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness for years and you're like, really? It's been like six years and I feel like we're going in circles. Sometimes they're places of boredom. Sometimes they are really, really hard. And it feels like everything good from life We've been removed from everything good in life. And it's just kind of us and God. We might, be, we might be surrounded by people and going through our day, but there's that sense of spiritual wilderness and isolation. But these are also seasons and times in your life that can be really formative if we seek God during those times. David, when, when, the, when it matters most, David manifests a confidence that I'm, I'm not sure you can get unless you go through a lot of time in the wilderness, a lot of time with your faith and your identity uh, being formed, a lot of time of submission to God, 
But that's where heroes are formed. Like, David isn't a... Like, the forging of David's character, what makes him a hero, isn't the moment with David and Goliath. It's the obedience all the way for years. He's, he's like a... He's an overnight success 10 years in the making that no one sort of picks up on until that moment arrives. But he's been faithful behind the scenes. He's been faithful in his wilderness place when his dad doesn't pay enough attention to him, when his brother, brothers are like, whatever. When the parties go on without him, when he's not invited in, when he's not thought well of or highly of, people know what David is like. He's just an arrogant little jerk. He stays faithful. He still shepherds. He does his work. And to me and to you, I would say, let those wilderness spaces and times and seasons in our lives do the work. Ask God, if you don't know what that means, just say, when you're in that spot, you just say, God, teach me who you are. Teach me who I am. So I don't want to wear someone else's armor. Teach me who you are. Teach me who I am. And prepare me for what's to come. You just say that every day. That's a simple way to invite God to transform your wilderness. But at the end of the day, this story has a higher view than simply just saying, trust in God, you can be like David, you can overcome Goliath. Because the story ultimately isn't really about us. Every story that precedes Jesus is about pointing to the significance of Jesus and giving us a new dimension through which to say, oh, that's amazing to prevent us from having a very simple uh, reductionistic view of who Jesus is and what he's accomplished. Jesus is in view here. The anointed king, who by the world standard is weak and powerless, not a mighty warrior, not fit to overthrow anything, certainly not, to, not fit enough to confront the embodiment of evil, just a, just a shepherd, but he's anointed, and he steps forward, and he's weak. He doesn't have worldly status. He doesn't have worldly stature. But he comes to confront an evil that is keeping his people under, uh, uh, under lies, under oppression, under spiritual imprisonment. And Jesus didn't just save us in spite of his weakness, but he actually saves his people through weakness, through his own humiliation. He didn't just save us from physical death, but he saved us from eternal death. And he didn't save us like David did, which was David risked his life to save Israel. Jesus gave over his life to save us from the power of sin and death and the devil. Jesus actually entered into and absorbed the shadow and the valley of death. He goes all the way to the cross, all the way and drinks deeply of the cup of shame and condemnation and judgment. And he faces, in a sense, the ultimate spiritual nightmare. But he does it with a courage born of great love for you and me. And he fights with the same motivation that David had. And I think this is why God says, I chose David because he's after my own heart. David said, I fight Goliath because I want the world to know that there is a God in Israel. And Jesus says, I'm going to go to the cross because I want you to know that you are loved. That there is a God and that God loves you and values you and is willing 
to step in between you and evil and absorb whatever violence, whatever cost, whatever judgment it's going to take to give you an opportunity to be saved. And that's why if you are a Christian, you can now say, or you can sing along with David, even though I presently walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm not going to fear any evil because I know God walks with me. Let's pray.